Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. The How to Exit Podcast. Today, I'm here with Michael Frew. He's an acquisition entrepreneur, and we're going to have a great time. We'll talk about making the migration from the engineering world to being an acquisition entrepreneur, and we'll get into a couple cool topics here. Thank you for being on the show today. Uh, it's great to be here. I learned a ton from your show in the past. It's quite an honor and a surprise to be able to do this. So thanks again. Awesome. Let's take a step and go back to, you've already told me your origin story. We've kind of had a nice conversation already. But for the audience say, how did the running jokes always, and I'm sure you've heard it a million times, say you were born and now you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. How in the hell did you end right. up here? Um, <laughs> tell me how you ended up on a show about buying and selling companies. Let's just kind of do your origin. Absolutely. So I'll bore you by telling you the same story again, I guess. But uh, yeah, thanks for chatting with me before this. I think like a lot of your listeners, I'm an ex-engineer, ex-developer. I did 18 years, kind of that corporate role, starting as a junior developer and working my way up from there. And like a lot of us, you kind of get pushed off the box in many ways where you get pushed into management. And that can, for, for a lot of us, not be as much fun. And reached that point where I had a quarter-life crisis where, you know, I just didn't want to do this anymore. But then you fall back into it. Because we all, this is what we study. This is what we enjoy doing. And we kind of don't think we can do anything else as well. So I kept coming back into tech. I would do a different role, maybe work a different management position, quit again, try and find something else to do. So somewhere in there after, as I'm approaching 20 years, I've been doing consulting, did some information security. Somewhere in there, I stumbled on the idea of acquisition entrepreneurship, but mainly for online businesses. There's quite a good amount of information out there about acquiring offline businesses. But back when I looked at it, so it's about 2014, 2015, and this world was kind of new. People were just figuring out how do you sell businesses? How is that ecosystem even going to work? And acquired my first business. It was just a five-figure business back in 2015. I realized, oh, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Done with the corporate career. Now I'm in charge of my own projects. And so for the past eight or nine years, been running them, acquiring myself, I just kind of buying businesses and projects that I thought would be fun to run. So I'm my own boss. I get to build my team the way that we all want to work. And I've just been going from there. So uh, that's hopefully a quick origin story for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what type of, is there, are these SaaS companies or are these just a whole variety of stuff? What type of, kind of give us an example of the acquisitions you've made. Yeah. Absolutely. So I looked at everything, right? Because I wasn't smart enough at first really to say, all right, so here's what my specialty is. Because what's kind of cool when you look at all the broker listings and everything, there's so many interesting businesses out there to, mm. to acquire. So I've bought content, I've bought affiliate, I've bought e-com, SaaS software. And over time, I started to realize like my background and what I enjoyed doing was I really enjoy working with other engineers. So this kind of rolled me into the SaaS software side. 
Mm-hmm. Not that the other ones aren't fun or exciting. And I think a lot of engineers can do really well, especially if you're in the marketing and if you're making content and stuff, that's very data driven. So there's a lot of different ways that we can all move in that space. But for me, I've settled pretty much on SaaS software. I'm really into cloud infrastructure, engineering tools, engineering services, stuff that's interactions with other engineers. So it helps make me feel like I'm still young, still in the business. Um, I love on the customer service side where the, the people I'm speaking with are maybe a few years behind me, kind of moving their way up in their junior to senior ranks. Um, so for me, that's my specialty. Awesome. And then, so are you primarily, your holdings now are SaaS or you still have the, some of the other ones still legacy? Yeah, ones I, I kept a couple of them. And so they just run on the side, low priority, I guess you could say. But yeah, my, my larger acquisitions are all SaaS now. So mm-hmm. I run three companies. I bought four that are, I bought two six figures and two seven figures. And then I've sold one of the seven figures. So I run the three right now and, you know, certainly enough to keep me busy, but also to build that lifestyle that I enjoy. Yeah. So what does it look like? What's your, uh, I've had a few people on here that have acquired SaaS companies. I've had a few people on here that have done SaaS holding companies. I like the idea. I'm a big fan of recurring revenue. Prior to Danny in this space, I was a real estate investor. I still own a bunch of real estate. So the whole, I want to work once and get paid over and over again, appeals to me to that extent. <laughs> but I'm also knowing that I've never really been good at programming. I jokingly call myself a functional programmer. And everybody's like, oh, you do C? Like dating myself there. But I'm like, no, no, I write it until it does exactly, it functions and does exactly what I want it to do. And then I like anybody else that like tries to use it, it doesn't work because they don't do the exact use case that I wrote it to do, right? I can write in a few languages, but it's just been so long since I did it. So I, I stay away from the SaaS and other stuff just because I don't even know enough about it anymore to have a really good BS meter, right? That was something that I, I'm a big fan of. If I'm going to own something or be around it, I need to be able to skim through the code or whatever and say, you know what? That's not eight hours worth of work and you're not, you're not yeah. something else is going on here. That's the reason I've stayed away from like the SaaS model, but it appeals to me in the realm of if you treat the customers right, they pay every month. So what's your, if you're out there looking and what kind of the, what appeals to you as a buyer for a SaaS company or any digital asset where you're like, I'm going to put this in my portfolio. What are the things you look for? Absolutely. And I, I have a phrase, I call myself a C minus developer. I was just (laughs) incredibly average. And so it, it, it doesn't mean you don't have to be an A player to be able to be successful in this. Really, you just need to be able to understand, like you said, do I have a BS meter to understand what I'm looking at? And can I coach and manage other people that would be the A players to run it? And that is probably one of the first things I look for is, can I find a team typically at the size that I'm acquiring? So I'm looking for something that maybe has 500,000 to 2 million in revenue. Typically that business is going to be run by the original developer or maybe the small team. Mm-hmm. So if they're looking to sell, they're probably going to leave the business. So you have to replace them and you factor that into the price and everything. But you're looking at, okay, how easy is this to replace? I've acquired a business where the original owner was, it was a little bit more his ability than I realized in the sense that Oprah's company isn't worth anything because it's about Oprah. And so I acquired that business and realized we couldn't replicate who he was. And so now I look for what is something that a new engineer can come in and run this with, without having the original owner in there once they teach them. So that's important to me. I'm looking for projects that I think are fun. I always think because I run a lot of cloud infrastructure companies, I say, I'm not out here curing cancer, but a lot of our companies are. And so it's really nice to be a part of that ecosystem. 
Um, I love working with engineers, like I said earlier. So those are the kind of things that I'm looking at as kind of the soft pieces of the business. And then there's the obvious parts of what's the revenue, what's the churn, what are the metrics, but we all look at that for due diligence. I'm looking for the projects I used to work on in corporate America, the really cool ones that you liked and you're like, man, I wish I was running that at my house. That'd be so neat. And then I can ignore all those terrible projects that we hate going to the meetings and all of that. I don't touch those. So yeah, a lot of it's a bit of a feel when you see it. This is something I'd like to run. This is an engineer I feel like we could replace successfully. And then now let's look at the metrics. Yeah, I was watching an interview where Elon was telling everybody that uh, Elon Musk said, you know, if you're at one of my meetings and you don't feel like you're either contributing to it or getting something from it, you're supposed to get up and walk out. And I was like, oh, how many times did I wish I could have done that in the corporate world, right? I was bad. I used to send invoices. So if, yeah, if somebody made me come to the meeting, I'd take a mental note of everybody in there. And I would tell my administration, like I had always, I was at the director level. I had two or three administrative assistants. I would tell one of them, say, this is the people. And then I'm like, write up an invoice and send it over to me. I'll put in the numbers. And I kind of knew by what they did, what their salary was. And I would send that invoice to the guy that called the meeting. This is what the meeting cost. This is what your meeting cost yeah. for our company. Right? Yeah. Some of these meetings are tens of thousands of dollars. If you look at all, yeah. like they have 15, 20 engineers in there that are making a hundred something grand. And we were there for two and a half hours. It, it was an expensive meeting. And that's, that's absolutely perfect in the sense of how we were treated both as engineers by our teams and our managers. And you, you think if I'm ever the boss, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Now, by, by doing this acquisition entrepreneurship, I can now make a team where we don't have standing meetings. In fact, I never met my main engineer in trip, maybe three or four years before we even met. And that was just for social, like it wasn't even for work. And that was kind of the environment that I wanted to make. It was basically remote before it was a thing. And so, yeah, even thinking about that Musk meeting of how much time and money those, because I know how much I'm paying my team to waste their time just telling me the same story every week. There's just no reason to do that. Yeah, I get that. Let's talk about it. So we know you're looking for projects that are interesting to you. They have the... What about the market conditions? Like I just looked at a company and I won't say who it is on here because all the NDA and stuff, but uh, they had made some major changes in their companies. Basically the company was, because of their changes, they'd lost them. They're not producing the revenue they used to, right? right? They changed the entire way they managed their company. And then the market had become more competitive. So now the changes are in place and now they want to sell it. So like they just had two years of declining revenue. And they went in a world where when they first started, they're the only person doing it. And now there's dozens and dozens of competitors that are like, so now they're competing against these other people. And one of the reasons I just, I, I, we did the first call and I, I love both the owners. They were just amazing women. They'd have created this business. It was doing originally doing 2.5 million a year, had decent profit margins. Now it's down to just under a million after two years, like last year's 1.7. Now it may be around a million this year. But they, they say it's going to turn around, it's going to turn around. Like the, whole, the eternal optimism of an entrepreneur, we fixed everything. We're selling it to you now. You should pay it what it was worth three years ago because now that we got it running, we'll be right back there. It's like, that was that. But the other side of it was in my own mind, and, and I, I'm, a, I'm a problem solver. I really believe I can solve problems. I didn't see a solution where I could carve up a niche in that market and say, this is mine. And competitive advantage moat, whatever you want to call it. I call it my moat. I want to build something where there's some barrier to entry to people getting inside of my bubble because I want to put an offer. Eventually, my goal is to put an operator in there and then I, I buy the next one and I come back and we do board meetings and we check on things regularly, but I'm not constantly having to like watch the competition, constantly having to do everything because we've got some barrier there. 
And this one, I just didn't see how to carve off something that was theirs. So uh, turnaround can be tough. And you're exactly right. There's a real challenge with, and I understand the feeling when sellers have something that has started to decline mm-hmm. and, but there is a lot of potential. And so they want to be paid for the potential. And the other side of that is sometimes they want to be paid for the work they've put into it. I've spent $120,000 of my own hours. So it's worth $120,000. Um, <laughs> Not how that works. Tough, yeah. <laughs> these are tough conversations to have with sellers to kind of walk them back to, you have to help them see from my point of view and your point of view as a buyer. So I'm looking at this, if I'm going to be putting this much money in, like, when do I get my money back? How do I make this grow? Like you said, you're a problem solver. What can we do to make this better? Because, you know, worst case is we just keep going in the same direction that we're going with you. So those can be tough questions. There are a lot of people in this industry that are, that specialize in those kind of turnaround situations. And that's pretty awesome to be able to rescue a business that you can do really well. And you open this a little bit with, you know, what's the environment like right now? And things have changed. So we're talking, it's about, it's October, 2023 right now. Things have really changed. Most of my career, I've been in this about eight, nine years. Uh, I would say certainly the last three or four has been a seller's market, right? There was tons of cash. Everyone was looking for somewhere to put cash because the yields were so low. And this was a market that people were starting to flood into. Uh, that has really changed with the, raise, with the rise in interest rates. So we're starting to switch to a little bit more of a buyer's market where sellers are starting to learn that, right? In 2022, sellers kind of didn't want to believe it. So there was a bit of a stalemate, buyers and sellers. We're now starting to see buyers are able to get a little bit of leverage, work those multiples down just a tad. I don't know how long that will last or if it will just level out. That's a little bit of what I've seen. SaaS is usually one of the higher multiples compared to like content or e-commerce. And so as always, as a buyer, I'm trying to figure out how do I either get the multiple down a little bit or a turnaround scenario, like you said, where that higher multiple, I can bring it down because I will do well with it. That multiple was crazy almost a year and a half ago. It's come under control to some extent since then, I think. It did become a, yeah, it became a question of like, how am I going to keep doing this? Right. So I'm used to, am I just being uh, stuck in the sand of like, well, here's multiples that I've been paying the last eight years. And now we've moved up here. Can I keep doing this career or should I just sell everything and go find something else to do? But now (laughs) some sanity has come back. And I guess that's, that's what the Fed is trying to do is get some of that optimism and bubble out of it. Maybe. Uh, I'm not a big fan of. We're not going to talk about Yeah. I'm not sure they know what they're doing, but we're not going to cover yeah. politics on here. That's not what we do. We definitely um, don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to the, the, the SaaS thing. I'm really curious about what does it look like as far as like when you look at these things, does tech stack matter? Do you, do you look at something and go, I don't even know that language? Because a lot of people don't get there. If you're not an engineer, you're not a, a technical person like you are and that I used to be, I'm not so much anymore. But there are a thousand different programming languages, three or four that are probably popular and common, but those aren't the same ones that are popular and common six years ago when these people start writing these apps. Does it matter or do you, you look at it and go, it's running, it's smooth. I can find engineers that, do, that know that language. Is that all that matters to you? What matters as far as tech stack goes? Well, I hate to use the, it depends answer. I have encountered a business that I bought that had that problem, exactly like you said. So it was a uh, language that's a little bit older, a little bit clumsier, and is not anywhere near what languages that are coming out now. So I did encounter the problem that the only people that knew that language that were real experts were kind of concentrated geographically in one space. English was not the first language. So if you think about customer service, this was a technical business. So the challenge was, My customers would write to me, the people that are writing back, it's very difficult for them to explain how to fix things. So in that case, the language did matter. The tech stack did matter. 
Was it Cobalt or what was it, Fortran? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to like make anybody mad because people do get pretty serious about their languages. Um, For our tech stack, at least what I was trying to do is with the multiple companies, if I can have engineers that are all on the same tech stack, even if the front marketing and it looked like completely different companies on the bottom, we're all using Ruby and, and Golang or something like that, then we can all work on the same thing. And that's kind of what I've been looking for. Now, you, can, you have to kind of expand on that as, as, like you said, things change over time. But it is nice versus saying, hey, let's go buy a WordPress site. And now all of a sudden I need a PHP person. That's a complete departure from the direction that I'm usually going. So that I might actually walk away from it just because of the tech stack. Yeah, that's interesting. I know PHP. That's the one of the very few. I wouldn't call it a programming language. It's more of a, pops up. It's probably more of a scripting language. I buy, that's the type of sites I buy, though. I buy uh, WordPress blogs and, and yeah. that type of stuff. I've written for some pretty hefty websites on P- in PHP. I had a, I spent some serious money building out sites that were built on that. And this is before Ruby came out, though. So that was kind of the end thing to do back then. I've been kind of also known for like, I'm not interested in big, expensive hardware stuff. So if you've got, they don't even exist anymore, but like back in the day when Sun Microsystems was in every diagram data center that was overpriced and Linux machines would outperform them. Yeah. I, and that's another thing, like you have to find that community that, that runs that and you have to look at, so what is that pay expectation? Um, it is a lot easier to find a Ruby programmer maybe than somewhere in the Microsoft tech stack. So. It is something if you're replacing, like we said in the beginning, if you're replacing the developer, you really have to look at how expensive is that going to be to get a, let's say a B to an A plus player in there to make sure it's run really well. So yeah, I I might move my, it depends answer to, yeah, it kind of does matter. Yeah. I'm trying to think the, the tech stacks, we talk about the tech stack. We talk about like kind of the business in general, like what it is that you're looking for. What about. If you're inheriting the team, do you buy companies where the team comes with it? Or I guess those seven-figure acquisitions, they probably came with a team, right, of 10 10 or 12 developers? Or Uh, You know, in the SaaS space, a lot of times you can have a single developer that scales with just that person and maybe one customer. So, yeah, sometimes bring on one or two people. That is one of the great things about if you can find a good software company where every customer doesn't require a new sales rep on the internal side. And it's a setup once and run forever situation. You can have very small teams, but yes, if you do have a team that comes in, so you have to be able to absorb that into the group, definitely one of your responsibilities. And at least for me personally, one of the things you want, or I guess one of the things that I want when I'm speaking with a seller is this is something that's probably one of their babies, right? They have worked on this for a long time. A lot of, almost every business I bought, I think every business I bought, the seller actually did not want to sell. Something else positive had happened in their life. One of them got a job at a company that he really wanted to go to. One of them had his startup funded and all of a sudden he had to divest everything. So in many ways, they weren't really dying to sell it. They just had to. So they care about who's taking over. As a buyer, you know, kind of my story is like, listen, we're going to take care of your team. We understand where you're trying to go with this project and we like your customers. Here's some other companies that I have that are also dealing with the same customers. Read our reviews, like hopefully they're happy as well. And what you want to try and say is like, I'm going to take your baby and move it up that business chain here. And it kind of goes from the person that takes it from zero to one. Then Michael Frew shows up. I take it maybe from one to 10. Then I look for somebody like a big man software, right? And so they're looking for one to 10, one to 10. I'm one to two. They think they're one to 10. And then they're going to maybe find a PE firm that's 10 to hundred. And that's kind of how we go up that chain. But I'm trying to help sellers that are technical business, got to sell it. Just need that next person to take it and add some marketing, make it scalable move it to that next spot. Awesome. Awesome. 
I've interviewed a few of those guys out there, the big band guys, and the and I've interviewed uh, the guys that are on Folio, I think it's one of them that's public now. Yep. And yep. some of the other guys out there. Similar stories, but they're they're looking for the bigger things, right? They're looking for yep. bigger targets. I like that you, my curiosity, what you said, it's a one or two man thing. If you're down to one or two men and you got other, because that's your basic, biggest expense in any of this, yeah. is the manpower. The reason I go after podcast, podcast uh, services, pre and post, newsletters and blogs, is because the profit margin's insane. A lot of people don't believe yeah. me when I tell them that a good n- newsletter and blog that's actually producing revenue runs, if it's running less than 75% profit margin, they're messing it up and they're doing something wrong. Doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they can run at 80, 90, 95% because you really only need a good writer and somebody that knows SEO and maybe a tech guy. And I tend to be my own tech guy. So somebody to fix the DNS on the server or something weird if you have to move the site. But you can bring those guys in or like for me, I, I know that stuff well enough. I do it. Your SaaS software, if you only got one or two people, what's the going... What's your profit margin you look at for some of these? Are they high? Is it is a high profit yeah, margin business? It is. And so I like, so if you're saying 75, so if I'm in the 60 to 65, because I'm adding that extra kind of talented engineering team yeah. in there, I'm pretty happy with that, which again, you know, we're almost unheard of. And, uh, yeah. And you see all these other brick and mortar things that are talking one to three to 5%, but it's just, it's unbelievable what we get to do in software. And you made me think of a, a, a way to kind of relate this to your audience, especially of the developers and engineers. There is a, what I would call maybe an unsweet spot to sell your business where it's the one engineer and they're making enough money. I'm just going to throw out a number, a hundred thousand a year, trying to sell your business there where me as a buyer now needs to put a new engineer in there. That's going to cut out a lot of that profit. But if you are already a developer and engineer and you're looking to leave your corporate career and you could take this on and like, this is your job. So you're, again, saying you're making a hundred thousand, you're taking that spot and you can move it up to a point where then someone like me could buy it, where I'm going to put a team in there. I think that's an excellent off-ramp from the corporate career is find a business that you could run. Now all of a sudden tech stack matters and, and a project that you like, yeah. but if you can find that business, you save the money to be able to acquire it. That's a really cool off-ramp that I've seen engineers try and do and say like, all right, I can just do this and I don't have to worry about that hiring new people thing. I'll train somebody to sell it later in a couple of years. Um, so hopefully uh, that helps <laughs> for a couple of listeners out there that there is that it's a bad spot for me as an acquirer, but it's a sweet spot for engineers trying to look to move. It would be a great spot. There's a, a lot of people out there who flip websites. They go in and they flip. But I think there's a space out there for an engineer coming out of someplace and like taking on these projects that are just doing, say, $100,000, $150,000, $200,000, acquiring it. And I actually and flipping it, basically bringing it up yeah. to a level that you would be interested in selling it and taking it on the next project. Now they've got new, fresh ideal projects. And after two or three of them, they could probably hold on to some of them, right? Now yeah. they can afford it's that narrow band. Yeah. yeah. I, I just love that, like kind of that narrow spot where you could go. And so here's what I, I went and got an MBA and I wasted a hundred thousand dollars on it. <laughs> Have I done that and actually bought and bought a business and ran it in that small little and kind of learned and then acquire and sell and move myself out of there. It's just a really nice sweet spot for someone. I did the same thing. <laughs> There's reasons to do the MBA. And I don't know if, you know, the direction that you went, but what made the MBA valuable was not a direction I was going in. It wasn't, I wasn't going into networking. I'm a very strong introvert. So for me, it wasn't about like going out into the world of marketing. 
it was kind of coming back and doing this where I get to work on my own with my team. Right. <laughs> so but I, I enjoyed it, but it, maybe I should have bought some. So we, we talked about your search. We talked about the type of companies you've acquired. Now you've acquired the company. You're, you talked about putting engineer, key engineers in place. How do you, and you've got multiple of these. So I, I take it you're not 40 hours on each one of them. You're kind of overseeing the projects. You're doing yep. project check-ins or weekly or bi-weekly calls and just checking on things as, as they need to be done. How do you continue to grow these? Do you, do you guys have marketing people on staff? Do you like, what's your, how do you like solve the, okay, we've got, we own this thing now. How do we maximize its potential? Right. So I'm very much the definition of an owner operator. I actually really enjoy working on the businesses. So I'm in there quite often more than probably a couple times a week. And but you're right. Um, so I have a marketing person that works across all of them. And so we will test on one and kind of deploy it across everything else. Engineering team that works on all of them. And each business is, they are unique. And I've seen, so a lot of my colleagues that work in content or even some of the Amazon e-commerce FBA, it's, you're almost product or topic agnostic because you're applying the same formula to every single site. So you can buy 15 content sites and kind of apply that formula. It's a little bit harder to buy 15 SaaS businesses. So it is, it's one at a time. And so if you're looking at software and SaaS and, and you see these people saying like, Hey, I bought five businesses this year. Don't let that pressure you because software, like I buy one every couple of years mm -hmm. and there's an internalization process. That first quarter, we try and stay hands off and just say, all right, I'm not looking at, I'm not touching anything. I just want to see how it runs. Right. And that's where you start getting those ideas and you see the customer stuff come in. Due diligence, I always want to read the customer service queue. But once you start getting in there and you start seeing, okay, here are feature requests that they're looking for. We all know it's easier to make money from current customers when they go out and get new ones. So we're trying to expand kind of the, the value of each customer and go from there. So in a weird way, the business tells you a little bit about how to grow. We can tell all the outside marketing stuff because we all kind of know our space. And like the Gumroad founder said, and I'm terrible, I can't remember his name, but a lot of times your business is going to grow based on the environment you're in. Uh, since I'm in cloud computing, it, it's just growing and I don't know where the, if it's really me or if it's just the market that's getting bigger right. and I just happen to be surfing that wave. So uh, the short answer is it, it really is per business to figure out what might be the best way to do it. But yeah, I've got a team that kind of works across horizontally. So in a way, each business is legally structured by itself. And then the team works on each one and um, kind of as a unit. So you and I both worked at Lockheed. When you worked at Lockheed, did they have the, did you work on multiple projects? Did you have the billing where you had to like record the hours per project? You remember that? Like the time card you out and say, I put six hours on this project and 15 hours on this project. You remember that? And they had to teach me how to do it. And so to go back to our earlier conversation of how I don't want to set up my company, everyone just says like, I did 40 hours, right? And I okay. don't need you to break it down by project. And that's what I was going to ask. Like that. That's where I was leading with this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. And it is, it's scars from corporate life that we just don't want. And mm -hmm. life has changed, right? So you and I, of course, we're both 27 years old. <laughs> somehow we snuck a uh, earlier career in there and it is, I mean, corporate life, especially back then is very different. It has gotten easier and I have not been in the remote work world that has kind of exploded over the last few years, but I can imagine it's, it's not quite as strict as it was before, but still I want to make it as flexible. You don't have to ask me for vacation. Just check in while you're on vacation in case we have an emergency, stuff like that. But yeah, it's. Uh, 
try and making the business as flexible as possible, but still getting everything done. It's a challenge for me at the top to help put that culture out there. And is it, are these, so these are salaried roles by chance? Like they're just on a salary. Uh, contractor salaried. Yeah. Contractor salaried hourly. And, and again, it depends on the role. Yeah, right. Probably like a lot of people you start, like, let's do maybe a, a per project cost and then let's do hourly. And then if, you know, as you prove yourself, okay, now we trust you. Don't have to watch you anymore. You don't even have to file hours. Like yeah. just here's your goal and just run and just let me know how it's going. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty laid back too. Like, uh, for the people who work for me, you're like, oh, yeah. I need vacation this weekend. I was like. I haven't chatted with cool, you. Man. I haven't sent you. Yeah. We haven't sent a message back and forth to each other in the last four days. I wouldn't yeah. know if you were on vacation already or not. So long as like, if I look in there and everything's getting done, that's all I really care about. Right. Yeah. And um, I love asynchronous work. And yeah. so again, going back to like, try not to do meetings. We, especially with technology customers, we do have companies that as soon as they have a question, Hey, can we set up a meeting or a phone call? And I push back and we have a template of, you know, we just don't do that. That's not our culture. Mm -hmm. We can solve everything via email because I can get the most eyes on it and I can get the correct eyes on it. Mm -hmm. If we, everybody stops their role, we sit down for a meeting and Joe isn't in the meeting, then we're all wasting our time. Uh, so we also push back really hard to like, let's do everything as asynchronous as possible. Everybody's global. So trying to make that kind of a work culture. Yep. But that's again, that's something that I'm interested in building just because I've done this acquisition thing. You can run your business any way you want, which is, again, makes it pretty neat. You're about the second or third person who's got me semi-sold to getting back into this ass thing. I just, I like the recurring <laughs> revenue model of it. Yeah, it's, I think yeah. that with the right one, I'd only really need one, maybe a full-time, maybe a full-time and a part-time type of engineer level people. So other than that, it wouldn't change for most of what I'm doing, right? I always kind of thought of these, if they're doing four or five million, I need a 10, 10, 10 people on my team, right? And there's some people like if you're doing interior B2B sales, yeah. that makes sense. If you're doing something scalable, like we're doing where you sign up once and then we honestly don't have to communicate again, then I don't know what I would do with three more people other than, I guess, like, hey, try and go sell more. But, you know, I'm not sure that would have a return. Do you have, do the businesses you own have any cross, like cross selling and overlap, like where you can take a mailing list from one of them and sell it, sell services to your others? Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't. There's a little bit of cross and... I've always looked for that and like a perfect strategic acquisition of what would we bolt onto this that would be an easy sell or to kind of increase that customer value. I've just not been fortunate enough to find it yet. I know it's out there, but at the moment, no, but that doesn't mean people shouldn't find it. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely a, some, some spots where that would work. I don't want to, we don't talk, we don't throw shade on anybody in here. So I don't want to, really, <laughs> how do I word this? There's a company I interviewed that had acquired over 10 similar companies in the last two to three years, two years. And they acquire them because they have cross-selling and upselling abilities. It's adding features. But I used their product for a little while and they didn't integrate any of it in. So you had to pay, you had to sign up for one. And sometimes you got free access to one of the others, but you had to pay for this. But it was all kind of still a, a patchwork quilt kind of yeah. pack. You, gotta, you, got, you had to do your own zaps and stuff to make them work together. And I'm like, why do you acquire all these if you don't give me a good, you know, what? Yeah. I don't want an API. There. I want you to hook them together. You have both the APIs. You write. I'd be okay with like, hey, if you want this to work with this, download this app. We already wrote it. That would be fine, right? Here's a bridge app like that you yep. need to make these work together. But they didn't do any of it. So yep. like, I went back to the tool I was using. But I was thinking like, it's brilliant. They have all these. They've acquired all these companies, and that like they're buying companies that like they have one that has hundreds of thousands of users that all need a feature that this company only had five thousand users. 
So they start selling an email on those 100,000 users. Hey, we've got this new feature you needed, but they make it hard to use. And the, the usability is terrible and it reflects really poorly on the company. And well, so that's part of the, the, that six months that you would spend like looking at it. How is this going to work? And so hopefully you're thinking of that on the acquisition side. Well, I, I looked at it not even hard to use. That, that's kind of, that's a little hard because once you log into the other tool, it worked fine. But I had, yeah. a, I had to have a tab open for yours, the one that, I, that you sold me from, the email all this I was on. And the new one I just signed up for was its own tab. And like, they don't talk to each other. It's right. like a, different usernames, different passwords, different things. They both help with the, the topic that we're doing, the topic at hand. But they weren't, they weren't integrated in the words of integration. So that's one of the reasons I was asking you. Because that's where I was headed. Like, okay, you've got companies that are cross-selling. Do you integrate them into where they get the, they, somebody yeah, logs we in? we haven't had a perfect solution. I've looked at even acquiring competitors. And, the, you know, the idea of, so how, we have to pick one of the two platforms, right? Yeah. So we assume ours is better. But <laughs> then, then how do you get all the customers over here? And you're going to lose 60% of them. And so that, to me, on the competitor side, we kind of shied away from that a little bit. Some of the best companies I've seen grow, and I'm curious on your thought process on this, they grew because they constantly worked with like their customers. Like, what do you need next? What do you need next? What do you need next? One of my new, or both two of my newsletters that I own run on Substack, which is not that great. But I've got some friends that are all big on Beehive. And they keep telling me the story that Beehive started off that way. They were just a couple engineers that built a tool that they didn't like what was out there. But they constantly, people would go to them, hey, we needed to do this. And like, okay, we'll have that working by the end of the week. And they just kept adding on and building stuff that the customers wanted. The one problem I think I have with the newsletters we currently have and the uh, blogs that we currently run is there's just no regular interaction with the customers. I think, and maybe I know some of them, so I probably should just create a panel and reach out. And uh, there's a series of questions I ask every employee and they get sick of it. Every person that works with me, all my business partners, we do it at the end of every single meeting. And it's, it's three simple questions. It's how I manage everything. I simplified, I, I boiled down managing other people down to three things. What are we doing really well? So we got, we always start with a pat on our own back. So what are we doing really well? Right. Whether it's a project or the software or, or whatever. So the top meeting might be about the news, you know, a particular newsletter for us. So it might be, it's the hub. Okay, cool. The hub is a curated newsletter talking about mergers and acquisitions of small and medium businesses. So I'll meet with you and I'll say, what are we doing really well? We'll list the things that are working. Cool. What can we do better? Well, where are the places where we could make some small improvements, right? Well, you know, this and that, we cover all those. And then the, the, the last question is, what are we totally missing? What are other people in the market doing? What are our, what do our customers want that we're just, we don't do it all. We're missing something. There's always something you're missing. And I'd love to ask those, like pick 10 people who read the newsletters and say the same questions. What are we doing really well? Give me a pat on the back. What are we doing good? Where can we approve? Where, where are we? kind of hitting the mark, but we're, we're not quite scratching that itch. What's going on? Where are those spots? And then what do you need that we, we may be able to do for you? Like anything, this is your brainstorming session. Just throw it out. I need X, Y, and Z. What information do you need? What do you need? And like, what are, what are, what are you missing in your life that might be beneficial if we could deliver it? If I can ask that on a monthly or quarterly basis of people who partake in my businesses, we could grow like mad, right? Do you have any interaction with the subscribers? Yeah. Um, we do. So this is, and I'd see it in a kind of a feature request way, almost like you were talking about with Beehive. And the way you asked the missing question is, is so many times I've noticed that our competitors have come out with something and we miss it because we're so internally focused. And actually, it almost does come sometimes from a customer that says, hey, co company B does this. And I was like, they do what? <laughs> 
And that's where we're kind of is not out there. Um, so it's definitely a question I should be asking more, but we, boy, once you get, there's probably a, a tipping point of number of customers where you're going to get enough feature requests that really you're just trying to rack and stack those and then bring in our own priorities of what we think is the stuff that we see in the background of like, Hey, this isn't scaling or this is going to break in about a year. So we kind of put those in the front and then we try and add those feature requests in there. Um, but it does uh, almost all of it comes from customers because they're the ones really using it. And just like you said, I think every business wishes they had more communication with customers. It's very hard, but I also don't want to bother my customers because I right. don't appreciate it when I get a bunch of emails. So a lot of times we don't really know what they're using with a lot of our infrastructure tools. We just see that they're using the tools, but we don't know how or why or what the use case is. So the more they ask us questions, we learn a ton of what people are doing. And a lot of times it's like, wow, there's a lot more blockchain going on over here than we realized, or guy is starting to use this a lot too. So for me, the customer service channel, I've spoken about this on other interviews and podcasts, how important that is to really listen. It is not, the customer service channel is not something that you need to have tickets closed as fast as possible. That's a conversation you should keep going with as much as you can, especially higher up management needs to be reading that. If you write in a half the time, I'm writing back from all of the businesses. Um, so I have found that that's one of the best selling points. It's one of the best ways to find those features, get that relationship with the customers, get testimonials, especially when things go bad. If you're really quick on the customer service part and, and acknowledging like, Hey, there is an issue. Uh, we're trying to fix it. You're an engineer too. You know, this happens. Like just give us a minute. It really creates a good relationship. So that customer service channel is to me. It's overlooked in some companies and there's other companies that do it really well, but uh, I would encourage that. That's where the real magic sometimes can come from. Yeah. I've actually worked at companies where they didn't do a great job communicating. I can think of one off the top of my head where the, I was the senior director of operations. All the tech guys worked for me, but I wasn't the head of customer support. So when we would have an a a outage, I would write up exactly what happened and be straightforward and I would send that out, but it went through like PR type of level stuff and it went. And went out the customer support later, lady, she would re-engineer what I said. And I, somehow I got a hold of them one, one of these, one of these days, and it was absolute total BS story. And I was yeah. like, do you believe our customer? Like this is, these customers are paying multi-million dollars. We ran email service for some of the biggest email, email, uh, houses in the world. A lot of people don't understand how complex email actually is, but if you don't have a few, few million users, it's a, it's an economy of scale thing. You can't run a very efficient email system unless you have a few million users on it because it's just it's a it's because of the complexity and everything. I don't want to get into the details here, but <laughs> a lot of people outsource it and they don't. A lot of people don't know like like you know this company did just companies like even a bunch of AOL and a bunch of other people like we did millions of their users were on our particular system, and I was like these are engineers you're emailing this to and tell them why we went out. Your story's not going to land with them. It's like she would make up these stories. I was like either. He's like, what do you, well, what do you want me to do? I said, be honest. Just yeah. tell them what happened. And they're the group that understands. And, yeah. and we try and do that too, because just like you, we've been on the other side of like, this is a toll. We see when Google and Amazon, like everybody knows they're down yeah. and their boards are all flashing green and Twitter's all like, dude, you guys are having issues. And then the, the reasons they get back. And that's another one where we're like, we don't want to be like that. No. When we screw up or if it's, if it honestly is like, we're not really sure what the heck is going on, but just we'll, we'll tell you as soon as we know. We try and put together after action reports. Yeah, we're getting in the weeds of like in a pretty big tech company. But again, we hope that the customers see that at least they know they'll always get the truth. If it was down for an hour, that really stinks. But we told you the real reason and that's the best we can do. <laughs> yeah. So I think it goes for a long way as far as like if 
the reason I even brought it up is if you're a small company and you're an engineer and you're one or two people, you don't want to be betraying trust because that, I mean, in today's day and time, that gets out so fast, right? Even back when this was years ago, when we did it, there was, that was still not a thing you wanted to do because we were a decent sized little company. Um, But we, I probably, we probably, because of what we did, we probably only had 20 clients, maybe 30, right? Because every client gave us millions of users. We didn't need that many to run a business. So um, what are some of the things that we're getting close to the end of our time here? What are some of the things that you're, if you're out there, if you're speaking directly to other engineers in the space that are thinking about doing what you're doing, what are some of the key takeaways that they need to, what do they need to do to get started? And what are the lessons, what do you know now? I guess the, yeah. What do you know now uh, that you wish you knew back then? I guess is where I'm I'm going 360 degrees to get to this damn question. But uh, what do you know right now that you wish you'd have known on day one to help these guys out? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a little bit of why I'm even out here doing uh, shows and podcasts. It's just the awareness that this is a career option. I think there's so much out there about trying to start your own business. And we're engineers and a lot of us are very entrepreneurial by nature. And so we're all building, you and I probably both have hundreds of failed projects in our archives. I know I do. And I was never a good zero to one person. Like I just couldn't get stuff off the ground. And I had no idea this existed, that you could go out and buy something that's already running. It's got marketing and customers and actual customers that are not your family and friends, and then take that and run it. So if you're an operational person like me, or just maybe not the greatest idea and getting it off the ground person to be aware that this even exists. So when I bring this up to colleagues and friends, and there's engineers that live in my neighborhood here. First, they're like, wow, okay, so how do I do this? And they, they always have kind of the same four questions. So I threw up on my website and I'm sure we'll throw that at the end of the interview here. I try and answer those four questions that everybody asks, which is, you know, like nobody sells a, a really good profitable business. Well, yes, they do. And here's why they do it. How do I finance this? How do I know what niche would be good for me? And how do I know like what I would be good at? So I try and answer those questions as if we're just kind of like this, having a conversation in, right. in this room. And so if you can kind of walk away with that, like being aware that this exists, here's some of the easy questions to start looking at, like, okay, I am going to keep trying to do my own thing and and build it myself. But at the same time, I'm going to be kind of looking around to see if there's projects or businesses that I could buy and maybe leapfrog a little bit and uh, kind of, you're almost buying momentum. Um, So those were the things that I would love to get out to the audience of like, just be aware that this exists. It's the ecosystem is much more mature than it was when we started a few years ago. Um, and it's becoming professionalized. And so it, it is the acquisition entrepreneurship is pretty professional in the brick and mortar world. We're getting there with online as well. So I gave advice to uh, an engineer type. It's been about eight months. Now. I need to follow up with him, see what happens. He, he was in the exact shoes that you're talking to right now. And he's like, hey, I've got some money saved up. I'm thinking about doing the startup creating. And he, he defined the project pretty well. Good idea, but it's going to take a lot of money to get off the ground. And I said, I'm biased. I just told him straight off, look, I've got cognitive bias. I've been doing the same thing for about a couple of years now. I want to, I'm going to make some suggestions to you that you may or may not like, but I'm going to do it anyway. So here's what I suggest. And I told him, go find a company that your business idea would be a great product addition to what they're doing. It would be an extension of their product line. Find one that's for sale or the one that would be willing to sell to you that do that. So, so now, because he had enough money to, basically do a proof of concept and you thought he was going to raise money to go after that. I was like, yeah. now you don't have to raise money. Now just make sure you've got enough profit in there that it can support building out your thing. And the reason is, is now you've got a company that has revenue, profit, product market fit, and trust with those customers 
for something that you can upsell to them as a feature later on. If you do it that way, then you'll know pretty quickly because you can do a minimum viable product. You can do an MVP, get it in front of them. And if they bite, they bite. And if they don't, you didn't have a great idea to start with because these people trust you, like you, and spend money with you already. And he liked the idea because he had enough, he, he had a few hundred grand saved up. Like that's a great down payment for a lot of good companies, right? Oh, absolutely. Find something that, you know, and it was a software tool he wanted to build. Find something that like that would be an awesome add-on or a feature or would, would benefit that company for having what you want to build. And then yeah. make that company pay to build it. Because, you know, now maybe you don't take $150,000 salary for the first year. You dump the money right. back into building out the thing you want to work on. But uh, it's funded, right? Yep. And yep. I said, you've got enough runway to pay yourself and do this for, what do you say, 18 months or two years? And he's like, yeah. yeah. I said, if you get $1, if you can do it to where you've got $1 profit off of every dollar after everything you spend, your runway is infinite. So you, you buy a company that's already profitable and you just like, well, what does it take to build this out? And as long as you don't ever eat up that last dollar of profit, now you've yep. got an infinite runway to figure this out. And he, yep. he finally liked that idea because that was his big thing. Runway, run. I, I've got, you know, I've got 18 months to 24 months. Me, I've got to pay him this one engineer to help me. And we got 18, I got enough money to do this for 18 months or 24 months or whatever the number he had. And I was like, there's a, there's another solution here. That seems like good advice. So I'm hoping I need to check back with him and see, see how it went. See how it went and see if he did. And that is, I think that is the limiting factor here that uh, people will encounter is it's deal flow. There are way more buyers than are, than there are good businesses for sale. And so that is a big challenge and don't let it discourage you. Like I said, it, I spend years looking for my next acquisition a lot. So if I'm working on a project I already love, like you're going to be working on that for a little bit, you can sell it if you want. Like we said, some people flip, but don't be discouraged if it takes a little while. It's probably not sitting on the shelf right away. So again, if you're looking in your mid twenties, mid thirties, um, you've got time to kind of find that right business and buy. And I'll throw in there, if, if you haven't looked at at least 20 to 30 businesses anyway, you probably don't know the difference between a good one and a bad one. You'll pass up some really good businesses on accident because they didn't look like good businesses until you've seen That's 20, true. 30, or 40. Don't expect a software engineer who's got one person and they're doing, say, $300,000, $400,000 a year to have great QuickBooks and profit and loss statements and all the stuff that these look, you know, you buy the books, you buy the courses, and they tell you that people should have XYZ. You can't expect that out of if you're buying a company that's one or two people because they're owner operator and that's just not how it works, right? I didn't know that lesson. The finances in there. Yeah, it's going to be a mess at this price range. You're yeah. absolutely right. That's a really good point to bring up. Boy, don't look for that perfect thing. You know, is it is it fixable? That's yeah. really is you know, in your expertise come in there and kind of kind of like I had said, make the business a little bit more mature. And then that's where you're looking for, we'll go back to the big band software, like those guys that kind of take it from there. I picked that up on here on the show. I was like, I was interviewing one of the guys and he's like, so what do you look for when you buy? And I was like, I want good books. I want this. Like, why would you want good books? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, you're buying companies from, and I was looking at brick and mortar companies back then until I realized that we move often enough, that would be a problem. We ended up having to move unexpectedly to be near family that needed our help out in California. It's like, and I thought we were going to be where we were for a while. It's like, yeah. But we were looking at brick and mortar still. And he said, why are you looking for great books? I said, what are you talking about? So most of these business owners don't have great books. If a broker, if they do, it's because a broker band-aged them back together and made them look better. Or they hired somebody to help them for the last couple of years. But if you go off market and find good businesses, look for a good business. But good business doesn't equal good books, right? Good books. Well, if they're not expecting it, yeah, their yeah. books are going to be chaos. Yeah, yeah. Our CPAs would tell you. No. <laughs> 
And a lot of people go like, you know, well, books are everything. The numbers are everything. No, the numbers are everything. The books are not, right? Yeah. You just have to like extract it. Sometimes you got to pull up bank statements and tax returns and stuff like that and then build a profit and loss statement, a balance sheet, and then and your what's own. Really, huh? What's yeah, really then, going on? Yeah, yes. then you can analyze what's really going on, but don't expect it to be all put together for you and have them do that. They don't know. They don't know how to do it. And uh, so, I, but uh, I appreciate having you here today. What, how do people reach out to you if they want to, if they want to work with you, they want Absolutely. more information, they want some of those videos you were talking about, how do they find those? Yeah. So michaelfrew.com, nice and simple. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm forward slash Michael Frew. So just reach out to me there. I'm not selling anything, just trying to kind of bring this awareness out. I feel like trying to catch Michael Frew from 10, 15 years ago where I didn't know this was a career option and I just wish I did at the time. And so uh, anything I can do to help, just reach out. Um, and yeah, michaelfrew.com is probably the easiest way to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you. And we'll call that a show. Yeah, great. Thanks. I don't want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now